Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. The Pre-Med Year, session number 541. Hello, and welcome to The Pre-Med Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Welcome to The Pre-Med Years. Thank you so much for joining me today. We have a great session today with a study expert. We're going to talk to Doug from Icosa Prep. Before we jump in, though, I want to talk about the MCAT Minute brought to you by Blueprint MCAT. Did you know one of the best times to take the MCAT is kind of that January to March or maybe April timeframe of the year that you are applying, a year before you want to start medical school. And taking it during that kind of early spring will allow you to retake it if you need to and not really mess up your application timeline. The best way to get on track with your studying and with your plan is with a free study planner tool by Blueprint MCAT. Go over to blueprintmcat.com today, sign up for a free account and start using their free study planner tool to make sure that your study plan will hopefully work to take it during that recommended timeframe, that January to March or even April timeframe. And if it doesn't work, it's okay to push it back a little bit. You just need to make sure you take the test when you are ready. Let's go and jump in. Say hello to Doug. Doug, welcome to the pre-med years. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I'm excited to chat with you about um, test prep and study skills and all of that stuff because apparently, this is what I've heard, uh, pre-meds go through a lot of testing, whether they're taking their undergraduate classes or this little thing called the MCAT. So I'm super excited to chat with you, and I know this will hopefully be super beneficial for students as they're listening to this and hopefully learning some more study skills to help them on their journey. But first, how did you get into this world? It's actually a long, strange trip, to be honest. Um, I started my life as uh, I went to chemistry, uh, grad school for chemistry, and found that that wasn't really the way for me. But I worked in the field for a little while, and then I got into the teaching side of things. And so I taught at community college and university level chemistry, like GCHEM, OCHEM, analytical chem, a lot of the labs, and then was you know, kind of disenchanted with academia. And so I discovered test prep. So I got into working for one of the big companies for a bit. Um, and then I moved on from one of the big companies into working for myself. And now I, I tutor and um, advise students on how to work on their standardized tests and things like that, and especially the MCAT. 
um, but also the DAT and the OAT and the GRE, um, as well as I also work with a couple different schools working on post-bac programs mm-hmm. um, with the test prep portion of those as well. Nice. So uh, started off as a science nerd yourself and then realized that the academic world wasn't what you thought it was or wasn't what you wanted anymore. And then took some of those skills that you learned over time and uh, adopted them into helping others, which is such a common story for MCAT tutors and, and other people in test prep. When when you step back and you think about the the many years you've been doing this, not to age either of us, um, what do you think is the biggest like number one struggle or mistake that pre meds are making when it comes to studying? When it comes to studying, I think it's the activeness versus the passiveness of the study skills that are being used. Mm-hmm. Um, what I mean by that is like reading a book or taking notes on that book or watching a video and taking notes on that video are some of the most passive ways that one can try to learn and engage with the information. Whereas engaging with the with practice problems or creating themselves their own practice problems or creating a study guide for themselves or teaching somebody else are all active things they can do. They also, that comes with a lot more pain points of like, I could be wrong and that's scary. Mm-hmm. Whereas the passive things is like, it's what I'm used to. It's what I'm good at. And I feel like it's been working. And since it feels like it's been working, it's kind of home base, but it's not the thing that works the best. It may work at least in some capacity, but when you're taking a test over you know, five or six different scientific areas plus reading comprehension as a whole, like the MCAT, then you need to have more engagement across the board with your memory and with remembering things. And that passive technique doesn't do that as well. Yeah. So it's it's very interesting. I don't think I've ever heard, uh, obviously active versus passive, I hear all the time, but I, I've never heard it in that spin that you had which is human psychology of humans like to avoid pain, right? We we don't want to feel pain. We don't want to feel stupid. We don't want to feel like we are lesser than. And that passive versus active, the way that you just talked about it, just completely blew my mind in terms of, oh, like people potentially stick to more passive ways because it makes them feel better about themselves, right? Which is, as again, as humans, we want to avoid the things that make us feel bad about ourselves. And I think that's such a common mistake of I'm really bad at X, Y, or Z topics. So I'm going to really, because I I only have a limited amount of time to study right now, I'm going to just focus on the stuff that I'm good at because it's just going to make me feel better. Do do you think there's there's some um, correlation in that? Oh, extremely. Uh, A huge amount of correlation because of the, I, I think the time. You put the time on it and that all of a sudden makes it that more intense mm-hmm. because in the short term, when you're looking at, say, a 10 week, if you're at a quarter system or 15 week, if you're looking at a semester system course, it's difficult to do any major changes to your study style that, that you haven't already pre-planned. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's also um, it's difficult to use some of these techniques because more active techniques also involve a longer time span. They require more time to put into play. Um, you know, making mistakes 
which is honestly probably one of the most active ways one can learn is to try something, make a mistake, use that to figure out what it is you do and do not know, Mm -hmm. and use that to create more inputs into the, you know, the memories there and make those memories more accessible. That takes repetition and repetition takes time. And and so we, those, not only are the active techniques more painful, they also require more time. And so I think school, the structure of school, the 10 week, the 15 week structure of a lot of these schools is what forces also students back to the um, the comfortable land of I'm just going to read the notes, watch the video, read over the notes and and do that stuff again and again, because that repetition is, is quicker. It's easier to do. Yeah. I, I almost feel like modern education <laughs> um, is kind of set up to, to encourage this because I, I hear from so many students that are like, and it's mostly complaints of like, there was a question on the test that the the professor said wasn't going to be on the test. Or they, they said that anything that we cover in class is going to be on the test and anything we don't cover in class is not going to be on the test. And so we're basically like hand feeding students. Like you don't have to stray far from your comfort zone to do well. Do, do, you, do you hear that a lot or see that a lot? Not only have I seen it a lot, I was part of that. Um, <laughs> I think back to when I used to teach university and community college classes. I mean, I, I wrote my tests based on what I did in class. Yeah. So I would have my notes that I would use in class to, you know, present the content. And then I would iterate from that so mm-hmm. that it was like minor changes. So like, okay, we, they know how to do this thing. So we did this example in class. So they should be able to do this problem on the test. Yeah. Because I, I wanted to have people getting averages. I mean, in OCHEM, it's the cliche. Students always get the like the 50% average in their classes or lower. And I didn't want that. I didn't have want that to be my class. So I made sure that I was giving them stuff they could recognize. And I think that fed that system. Yeah. You know? And I think a lot of faculty do the same thing, especially newer faculty. The younger faculty, they don't know anything else. Like, mm-hmm. Faculty are not trained in education. Yeah them are just they they come in they start teaching in a university or a college and they're given a book and they say here's what you need to cover is this book and they say go and they don't tell you how to do it they don't tell you what to do they just say here go do it and like i mean that was my experience straight up my first class i was terrible i was a horrible teacher <laughs> I, I still to this day feel bad for those students because i'm sure they did some damage to them but you know it's it's part of that system, as you say. It's, yeah. it's built into the DNA of higher ed. Yeah. So what's step one for a student listening to this who wants to improve and recognizes potentially that what they're doing now isn't working? What's step one for them? I think step one is stepping back and realizing that Probably the most damaging thing that happens is the sort of binge on the content for a particular test is probably your most damaging trait as a, as a test taker or as a, as a studier, mm-hmm. because we're studying for a test. Instead of studying to remember information, we study for tests. Mm-hmm. And 
that's what makes it so that we can learn all this info and then, okay, I just took the test on it. Now I've got to worry about the next info. And it's just this ever repeating cycle. Once you get into it of learn a lot, dump it out in this test, learn a lot, dump it out on this test. And if it's not a cumulative test, then you're definitely not going to remember it. If it is a cumulative test, each time you do that, it gets harder and harder and harder to take that test because you're not remembering the stuff from the beginning because you're not giving your chance. You're not studying to remember. You're studying to regurgitate and, and get this information just out of your head in a way. Yeah. And so like in order to do that, one has to step back and say individual tests aren't important. It's the overall incorporation of the knowledge, which is the important thing. And it's hard to, to have that longer scale thinking that I'm not studying for this class as much as I'm studying for the future. And how, how do you balance that though? Because the, the typical pre-meds listening to this going, great, Doug, I appreciate your advice, but I need an A in my OCHEM class or else I'm not going to get into med school. And so how, how do you balance both, right? The test is important for, for a grade and that knowledge is important for the MCAT, which isn't going to happen for a, a semester, two semesters, three semesters. So OCHEM is an interesting example because in OCHEM, it is so additive. Even if the exams aren't cumulative, they're still definitely cumulative. There's so many things you learn in the first few weeks of organic chemistry that if you just learned them all just to then not remember them and not have access to it, you're not going to be able to do well later on. And I think a lot of students experience that in organic where they take that first exam, it goes pretty okay. Then the next exam gets worse. And then the next exam gets worse. And it's because the old stuff is not brought back into the fold. And I think the way you get around that is work on building repetitive memories or repetitive challenges of those memories as you go for everything. And I know a lot of students will say, but you know, I don't have time for that. And it actually doesn't take a lot of time. It's realizing you only have to spend like an hour or two a day. And that's the key, an hour or two a day on everything, on like that subject, mm -hmm. it's gotta be daily. So yeah. what ends up happening is, oh, I've got a big bio test coming. All right, I'm gonna ignore organic for like two weeks because I got this bio test coming. I got to build up for the bio test. And meanwhile, all the organic knowledge is languishing, even though you might've remembered it. Now you're giving it like two weeks or maybe a week and a half mm -hmm. to like die out that there's that the drop off in the learning curve that starts happening. Yeah. And then all of a you pick up all the OCHEM because then the next week you got the OCHEM test coming. Yeah. And it's just studying for one thing at a time, which is doing, which is doing the damage. Mm. And if you can get it to a routine and this is all about creating habits, it's all about developing a habit, which if you can do it for three weeks, four weeks for some of you, you can do it for three to four weeks in a row of studying like an hour or two for each subject every day that you're studying. And it doesn't have to be seven days a week. It can be five days a week, maybe six days a week. Mm -hmm. But getting into that routine where it's like a little of this, a little of this, like, so you got four classes, you're studying all four classes every day instead of one class for four days and then the next class for four days. Yeah, and that's if that change can be made, then this that you've turned the corner, you've been able to now get out of the the horrible repetitive cycle of of basically ignoring one class to solve another, and then ignoring the next class to solve another, and so on and so mm -hmm. forth.
Have you heard the the pancake analogy of med school? Uh, what's that? I don't know. Where med, med school is basically like uh, needing to eat 10 pancakes a day. And some days you're like, I can only eat two. But then that means you got eight left over from the day before. And today you got to eat 18. Like when you were talking about that, that's just what popped into my mind is, is like if you're in four subjects and you got to eat two pancakes a day for each subject and you're just completely ignoring three of the subjects, those pancakes add up and, and you just get completely behind and you got to scarf down 100 pancakes instead of 10 uh, across a week. Yeah. And it's just, I, I don't know what it is, right? We, we talk about procrastination. We talk about, um, again, the, the kind of avoiding pain and staying in our comfort zone. I don't know what it is about uh, a very common all or nothing mentality that a lot of people have with studying or with application prep, with whatever. I, I, I often look at activity logs of students and uh, it's a joke that I, I kind of phrase this term MCAT hibernation where students in their activity log on mapped, they'll have, they'll have shadowing and clinical experience and research. And then starting in like December, to March, there's absolutely nothing. And I'm like, what happened here? And they're like, oh, I was studying for the MCAT. I'm like, why did you have to go all or nothing to study for the MCAT? Why couldn't you continue to do a little bit of shadowing, continue to do a little bit of research, whatever? There's just this mentality of like, if I'm not spending 100% of my time on it, it's not effective. What, what, are you, what is your thought when you hear that? Oh, that, that, that makes me sad. <laughs> because like, number one, I think you're actually making your, your preparation for med school, not as effective because, it, you know, having a gap in your experience isn't necessarily a great thing to show on an application. Like all of a sudden you got this big gaping wound and then you go, what were you doing? Oh, studying for MCAT. Oh, why do you, and then they start the chain of questions by the people on the admissions committee of like, why do they need to study so hard for MCAT? And, you know, uh, I think the second thing is, you need a distraction from the MCAT. Mm -hmm. um, I know so many students that treat it like it's their full, full time times two job for those three months, like you're talking about. And then they just resent it so badly by the time they get to that end of three months that they can't score as well as they probably could. There's this resentment that grows because their life has become only about this and they're, they're leaving out other interesting things. Yeah. Like I, I want you to have a distraction. <laughs> To have a job or a volunteering experience that you can do to take your mind off the MCAT because mm -hmm. you can't study for MCAT eight to nine to 10. Some people do it 14, 15, 16 hours a day with almost no break. And it, it's, it's mentally taxing and it, it just takes you out of it. Nobody can be effective for that long at any given time. Yeah. I don't care who you are. Like you have to take breaks. It's just, it's a requirement. Like even during taking the test, you get 10 and three minutes right here and there. <laughs> You got to do that. You got to create that for yourself. Yeah. Don't, don't do what I did with, I, I think it was step three, uh, USMLE step three. I, I just powered through every break. I'm like, I'm just doing it. <laughs> just, I didn't take any breaks, didn't take my lunch. I just went for it uh, and, and I passed, but whatever. Um, so when I, I, I talk to students who are in the middle of MCAT prep and they're completely burned out. And I'm like, when's the last time you shadowed? Like, when is the last time you remembered why you're doing this? And they're like, it's been three months, been four months. I'm like, go do that. And then they come back. They're like, oh my gosh, that was so helpful. Uh, so well, it's, well, it's sad. Speaking of, 
well, speaking of, of active learning, the shadowing can actually bring some of that science that you're studying to life. They, they can see it in practice if they're actually there and thinking about what they've been studying and looking at what's going on in the, in the clinic or whoever, whatever they're doing. And they can actually say, oh, wait, that, okay, that's why I need to know this. So it becomes some practical application for these things that just seem completely isolated. Um, there's a lot of practical application of physics that students miss out on because they're just looking at it like Wiley e. Coyote falling off a cliff or something like that, where like if then you can see actual in practice usage of these ideas and say, oh, that's why we need to know this physics. It's not just shooting people out of a cannonball or cannon, uh, uh, <laughs> pushing cannon stuff, ball. pushing stuff off, uh, up inclined planes. <laughs> right. You know, and like you can start making sense of why somebody's sitting, like they're making somebody use an inversion table, say, mm-hmm. and there's, there's some physical reasons and making connections. That's what it's all about. And having that break for your brain to percolate, like so important to have to give the brain time to do what it does best. Cause when you focus on something, like, mm-hmm. I'm sure everybody's had this experience you get stuck on something and you just keep like beating your head on a wall about it. And then you just like, you finally give up because it's been hours and you just don't have nowhere else to go. You go do something random, like go cook yourself lunch or something like that. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, okay, now I get it. Cause all of a sudden when you weren't thinking about it, your brain still was, your brain still does all this stuff in the background and is processing information. And then all of a sudden it just comes to you. It's like the epiphany. Or the classic shower moment. You're standing in the shower and bam. You get hit with your <laughs> it's where my best ideas come from. Um, maybe it's because I spend like an hour in the shower. I got to work on that. Um, the, the, the classic thing that I hear from a lot of students is I, I do really well in chemistry, but I suck at biology. I do really well in biology, but I suck at chemistry or what, whatever, right? Insert subject here. From a study perspective, what causes that and how can students overcome that barrier? Maybe that's just in their head. I believe it's a bit of compartmentalization, like thinking that certain subjects, well, okay, let me say, I think it's two things. Compartmentalization, thinking that certain subjects are unrelated to other subjects. And then second thing is basically thinking I've always been bad at this. I know it's going to be impossible. So this sort of self-defeating um, attitude that comes into it and thinking, I just, I've always sucked at it. I see yeah. this happen with physics and OCHEM probably more often than any other subject where people come in and say like, I've always been bad at physics. I can't figure it out. Mm. Um, and to that one, I just say, or we've got to get in a growth mindset. Like this idea that you can't do something that's not going to fly. Like if you're going through med school, you're going to feel like you can't do something like every single day. And you got to keep pushing through that. And that, that's, that's more of a become attuned to yourself and realizing that, like, you know, if I just get out of my own way, I, I can do this stuff, right? And I, everybody that's listening to this is totally able to get past that. I have 100% confidence that that, in the end, is not going to be anybody's problem. I think the first part, the idea of compartmentalization is also damaging because there there's so many places where all of these sciences overlap. And I, I lament sometimes that the idea of the Renaissance person is gone, 
that, you know, you can't be a scientist anymore. You have to be a biologist or a chemist or a physicist or a geologist or whatever it is. But like they're, they're just science and they all fit together. And there's aspects of each of these things and you just have to look for it. And this is why I, another one of the powers of studying a little bit of everything every day can lead you down that path. And this is the idea called interleaving. When you have different topics, you can start to see the, in any given day, you can start to see the connections between those topics. And the more connections between topics you make, like let's think just biologically, the more different access points into the same memories that you have, more access points means more retrieval points, more retrieval points means I remember stuff for a longer period of time and it's gonna be easier for me to understand. And you know that comes from connecting things together, seeing the interconnectedness of all these different topics. And heck, from a more practical standpoint, the MCAT makes you do it. They're forcing you to do it now because the passages are not GCHEM passages or OCHEM passages or biochem passages. They're bio and biochemical, physical, whatever they call <laughs> these sections anymore because they wanted to make them a mouthful. Yeah. You know, they're going to combine multiple subjects into the same passage mm-hmm. showing you those connections. And yeah. The more you look at them ahead of time and, and the more access points you have, more likely you're going to recognize that stuff when you see it. Yeah. So a little every day interleaving it all together gives you a better chance of that happening. As soon as you mentioned that, right there, there aren't scientists anymore. There's, there's the physicists, there's the, whoever the, the first thing that popped in my mind is we have the same issue. I think with, um, with athletes, with kids growing up now, and there's so much specialization from an early age where it's like, Oh, I, I, the parents think you're going to be a professional baseball player. Therefore, we're not going to do soccer. We're not going to do football. We're not going to do X, Y, or Z. And probably all of those other sports would have helped with footwork in baseball or endurance in baseball or hand-eye coordination. And it's just like, why are we subspecializing so soon and and declaring like, I am the master of this one thing. I shall not <laughs> focus on anything else. And I think it's a big mistake that we do every single day, not just in in science, but in in lots of areas of our life. Yeah. It's crazy. I mean, I'll show my age a little bit. Like, we don't have Bo Diddley anymore. He was able to play multiple sports really well. <laughs> oh, good old Bo Jackson. Uh, and Deion Sanders, who's the, the coach here at University of Colorado, Buffaloes now. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting, right? So when we talk about translating what students are doing in their their OCHEM, GenCHEM, GenBio classes to the MCAT, how much overlap do you think there is between really helping a student understand yes spending every day learning a little bit of everything all of your subjects that's going to help you on the MCAT because I I don't think enough students think long term right they think what do I need to do today to get a good grade in my class today to get a good uh, uh, score on my test today and they don't think about that long term this is going to help me on the MCAT. Therefore, that's why I'm going to put in the effort that that you, Doug, are telling me to do. So I think one of the realizations that people have to make is the MCAT isn't testing you necessarily on GCHEM and OCHEM and physics and bio and psychosoc. It's testing you on MCAT GCHEM and MCAT OCHEM and MCAT bio and so on and so forth in that 
you for class you learn like so much just this like mile wide and also feet deep ocean of information whereas the mcat you're still on the mile wide it's a little bit narrower because they cut out a lot of ochem thankfully um like most of those organic reactions that you learned in like the middle of organic chemistry not on the mcat thankfully but now it's only an inch deep and you just have to know enough to understand what they're giving you and i think that's the thing to take away overall you don't have to know how to do everything in all these subjects by the time you get to the mcat you just have to know enough to recognize that oh they gave me this information this information is going to help me and i think that's where the mcat is a bit of a challenge also in a very different way is that it's not it's not a science test yeah and i know i may not be agreed with by a lot of people out there but it's not really a science test as much as it's a reading comprehension test 100 and it's, it's like yeah there's you got to know science you have to know some science but you don't know have to know every single detail you have a have to know enough that like oh they gave me this they gave me the name of the protein and that's enough for me to know what kind of a protein it is mm-hmm. so like i have to know the vocabulary and if anything, the big takeaway is if you know your vocabulary from each of these classes and retain that, that's your biggest help on the MCAT. Mm. Being able to like say, be familiar and fluent in organic chemistry and being fluent in physics. You know, being fluent in physics is like knowing your equations and not just like for plugging in. In fact, you may plug into an equation maybe twice on a whole test. But knowing that power equals work over time, not P equals W over T, power equals work over time, because they're not going to say the P is <laughs> this, P is that, what is the W? They're going to say, find the energy required if this device, this 40 watt device is working for 10 seconds. Mm. And so, and that's that vocabulary. It's all vocabulary. And then yeah. if you just remember the relationship, this is that over that, you can figure it out. It's almost and, like you're you're speaking multiple languages at one time. You're like, what's what's the English? What's the the abbreviation language? What's the this language? Yeah, you're you're you've got to be a polyglot of the science languages. Yeah, like organic chemistry nomenclature and the amino acids for biochemistry and understanding, you know, just not even understanding, just like be able to regurgitate that and hormones. This hormone does this thing, and like knowing that, um, it's just a lot of vocabulary. Yeah. I mean, if I had to distill it down to say, what do you need to take away from those classes to be ready for the that, that would be it. Is the vocabulary of those classes mm-hmm. is most important because you're also you're going to learn some other skills. You're going to learn how to do the calculation. You're going to learn how to do this. Those things come back. You haven't forgotten it. Mm-hmm. It's still in there somewhere. You may think you've forgotten it. You may swear to all that's out there that you've forgotten it, but. At the end of the day, that can be recovered. It's the vocabulary. If you can't read that and understand that, you're going to have a harder time. Yeah. So we talked a lot of science stuff today. You just mentioned the MCAT is a reading test that just happens to cover uh, science, right? It just happens to be on about science. There is one section of the MCAT that is reading comprehension that uh, used to be called verbal reasoning, now critical analysis and reasoning skills, uh, the critical analysis reasoning section. The uh, 
the larger body of students out there seem to struggle with this section the most because it's not something that they learned in their textbooks. It's not an equation they can memorize. It's not whatever, right? What is your thought process when you're talking to students about this dreaded car section? It's interesting that you bring this up because I've been doing a lot of thinking about it lately. In fact, I've developed and been piloting a couple classes on just this idea of like, what does it take to be ready for um, cars? And one of the big things that I do focus on up front is vocab acquisition. This is particularly difficult with our L students, English language learners. Um, if they didn't speak English natively, their vocabularies are a lot smaller, which is why their cars is probably more difficult for them than it is for a native English speaker. Um, much like everybody seems to have somewhat of an issue with the sciences if their science vocabulary is weaker. So there's the vocabulary piece, but it's also about like, what does reading comprehension actually mean? And I find that when somebody says, I'm going to do a deeper read, I'm going to read it more carefully, they often do exactly the wrong thing, which is read it word for word. And so it sounds like when you were in middle school and your teacher called on you to read something out loud and you're just like this, da, 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 da. and you're like, so it's just a bunch of disconnected words. Mm. Language doesn't work that way. Yeah. At least the English language doesn't work that way. Groups of words have meaning. And so learning to chunk sentences properly to like, and this honestly does come back to a little bit of grammar mm -hmm. of just being able to recognize that's a prepositional phrase. That isn't the key part of my sentence. That's <laughs> I have no idea what that is. <laughs> and some people just naturally can do it. They just ignore those things. But other people just like they get focused in on all the wrong words or they start combining different parts of the sentence that don't relate mm -hmm. to each other. And it's spending some time actually maybe just learning how to parse a sentence mm -hmm. and focus in on what's the core of the sentence. You know, there's an exercise I do with students that are really struggling with cars where I'll give them sentences and say, cut away all the extra things and what's the core of the sentence. And oftentimes it's just two words. It's the subject and the verb. Mm. And so, and it might be like, Judd feels. Okay, so that's, we're, now we're starting with something. And then you can start asking those reading comprehension questions of yourself to say, okay, what does Judd feel? Oh, he feels this because that's what the next, that's a phrase in the sentence. Then when does he feel it? That was a different part of the sentence. Or why was he feeling it? That was a different part of the sentence. And if you can get just down to that core meaning, and then you can start asking those questions, you're going to understand the writing better. Mm -hmm. And so it's learning to ignore things. Mm -hmm. If like, if that makes any sense, learning to ignore most of the sentence at first and then bringing it in. Yeah. Focus on the core of the sentence and then bring other information in. Yeah. And I mean, the same can be true about the science too, knowing what is and what is not important. I know so many students that get caught up in those complicated science passages thinking, they have to read all those like P137 QT5 and like they get so caught up in those letters and, and abbreviations and things that they they don't know what the sentence is about anymore. So ignoring the extras until you know what to do with them mm -hmm. is like it's the car's way. It's the science way. Either one. It's the same task.
Yeah. I, I know you are a, a avid learner of learning, uh, of study skills, and you had two potential book recommendations that maybe you would recommend some students go read if they have some spare time. What, what are those books and why do you recommend them? So there's one book, How We Learn by Benedict Carey. Uh, this book came out, I think I was still living in Texas at the time. So it was probably like 12 years ago or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's actually a scientifically referenced book. And that's one of the reasons why I really like it. But it goes through like, how does memory work? And it's the scientific basis of how memory works and looking at studies of like what works well for long-term recall of information. And that's where I think it like, this is probably the popular seminal work of, you know, what are the best ways to learn like interleaving and percolation and rep, you know, um, spaced repetition and all those buzzwords you see out there like that. Um, uh, Anki throws your way. Oh, Anki is the space repetition thing. Although nobody ever uses Anki really well, <laughs> but, um, like that's, that's what, how we learned it by Ben and Carey is all about is just like sort of establishing the scientific basis of what works well and why. Okay. And then the second book is it just came out this year and I really like it. It's outsmart your brain by Daniel Willingham. Uh, the, this book is sort of, it's like almost if, a, if, if you will, a sequel to how we learn <clears throat> and it talks about, okay, let's understand that we have this barrier to entry. We have this fear into trying something new. So here are some things. And it's like, it's just trick after trick after trick of how to put these learning strategies into, into action. And um, both of them are very easy reads. There's mm-hmm. something you can read pretty casually. You don't have to spend a lot of brain power understanding what they say. Mm-hmm. So um, they're written when pretty uh, accessible language. But together, I think they really paint a picture of like, how does the memory actually work and what's a good practice? And then the second book is, how do I put it into practice in the least painful way possible? Because I can't say there's a painless way to do it. Yeah. At some point, there's a pain point you're going to have to deal with, a threshold you'll have to cross. Mm. And and that's where we come in sometimes and, and help people work through that pain. Yeah. Awesome. Doug, you're going to be speaking at MappedCon 2023 in Baltimore, October 6th through 8th. Uh, what's a, a little highlight about what you're talking about and why students should should come and, and listen to you and hang out with all of us? So um, I'm really excited to be coming to do this. And um, I'm going to get the opportunity to actually not only give you some practical things you can try, um, as far as your study skills are concerned, but we're going to try them in person. So I hope to think it's more as a workshop than a talk. Um, I'm not going to be standing up there just like talking at you the whole time, but we're going to be trying some things as group, uh, as individual groups. Um, and so hopefully test the waters. And, and again, like I said, I think one of my jobs is to help people get past the pain point mm-hmm. because it's going to be there and I can help you move through it. Nice. More- Leslie, <laughs> <laughs> more efficiently, uh, effectively, yeah. uh, all that good stuff. Um, where can people find out more about what you do day in and day out? Um, I have a website, icosaprep.com. Um, and uh, I also have a link tree. Um, if you go to linktree.icosaprep, um, you can find links to like testing calendars and some just blog posts and um, 
and all kinds of little information about what we do, like test prep and learning strategies wise. Nice. And ICOSA is I-C-O-S-A, I believe. Yes, I-C-O-S-A-P-R-E-P. Nice. So I'm a little bit of a nerd. I was going to ask, what's background. the what's the the meaning of that? Um, I often do things in steps. I have a little bit of a, a issue with OCD, <laughs> and so things I do things in twenties. Like there's twenty steps to do this and twenty mm. steps to do that. Plus, it also goes with my dice addiction. Um, I play <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons. I'll admit it, and I have just so many d20s. Okay. And that, that icosa means 20? Is that what that means? Yeah. Okay. Icosahedron would be the 20-sided oh, yeah. shape. Okay. So, All right. Yeah. <laughs> well, Doug, thanks. A little, meta, a little bit nerdy. Goes <laughs> right with the, the territory. Go, goes with it. I love it. Thanks for coming on the pre years and super excited to to uh, check out your workshop at MappedCon. Any, anyone can go still get tickets. We still have some remaining at MappedCon.com. Thanks for coming on the pre years, Doug. All right. Thank you for having me. All right, so there you have it, Doug McLemore from Icosa Prep talking all about studying. Hope this was helpful. Don't forget to check out blueprintmcat.com for that free study planner tool today. This is MedEd Media.